All right, returning to the program now is Greg Stebbin from Men's Health Magazine. We promised you that Greg would be back, and, and now he is, and we need to talk about uh, this study on salt. Welcome back, Greg. Hi, it's great to be here. Well, you are. we should remind people you're part of Men's Health Magazine. Yes, I am, and proud of it. <laughs> and you guys are like, you got like editions all over the world, I understand. Yeah, I don't know what the actual number is, but uh, I think we're somewhere in the 30 or 40 edition range. I, I, I know I, I like to travel quite a bit, and it seems like no matter where I go, even you know, kind of out of the way places, uh, I'll see Men's Health on the newsstand, which is really exciting. It must be for you. Another journal we should mention here, the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. There's a current study out that uh, that says that salt may not be so bad, and then you're an article in your your magazine uh, picks up on this and discusses it. Let's talk about salt in our diet. Yeah, it, I think a lot of people are going to be really surprised by this. Uh, the article is called The Truth About Salt, and it is in the current issue of Men's Health. And um, we've heard so much about salt and the negative impact, and, and it's been vilified. And we all know that if you sit down at dinner and you pick up the salt shaker, and you shake it over your food, mm-hmm. it's almost like the eighth deadly sin or something. <laughs> Only, as we say in our article, and I, I don't know everything that's coming out in the issue until early copies of it fall into my hands. And this was an article that I knew we were doing, but I didn't really know the substance of it. Uh, and when I started reading the article, I think my reaction will be similar to many others. I mean, my jaw just fell open, because the point we're really trying to make here is you know what, if you want to salt your food at home for dinner, go for it. And I can give you some compelling reasons why it's probably not going to hurt you unless you have high blood pressure. Um, And even then, we can suggest some ways to mitigate that or reduce the problem because it's probably not because you put some salt on your food. Let's talk about that. Your article mentions that one out of three people in the U.S. have high blood pressure. It kills 55,000 people a year every year. Uh, and the death rate from high blood pressure is increasing over the past 10 years. And yet when you talk about salting your food, etc., the, f- the salt that we're getting is not really coming from a home-cooked meal. That's, that's one of the points we make in this article. So, uh, you know, what, I, I think if we stopped the average person on the street and we said, you know, what do you think of salt? They'd say, oh, it's bad for you. And we'd say, so what have you done to correct that in your life? They'd say, well, I don't put salt on my food anymore. Well, okay, that's what we all think. Here's the reality. of the salt in your diet, 5%, comes from a home-cooked meal. So if you add a little more to your soup, did that make it 5 and a quarter percent? I don't think so. 12% of the sodium or salt in your diet is naturally occurring in foods. Can't do much about that. So that leaves a lot of salt left. Where is it coming from? Oh, well, 77% of the salt in the average person's diet comes from processed foods and restaurant meals, 77%. So, you know, as I've said here a couple of times, if you're salting your food at home, it's not going to make a dent in that other 77% that's going into your body from foods that you're buying in the supermarket or at a restaurant. And, of course, well, attention Frito-Lay. It may be time to, uh, if if you want to get serious about it, just (laughs) eat fewer chips and such. Well, I'm not even sure that. See, that's a logical place to go, and I wish that the problem could be isolated in that way. I wish we could just say, oh, reduce the salt, cut out the junk food. But the reality is if you start picking up any processed food and many foods in restaurants, you're going to find that even though you wouldn't logically think they would be heavily salted, 
they are. I mean, look on a can of soup. Look oh, yeah. on, you know, gravy. I mean, sauces. It, it, it's incredible the amount of salt that goes into our foods. And I think the next logical question is, well, why is all that salt there? Because when you hear me say 77% of the salt in your diet comes from processed foods and restaurant meals, then you may want to make the food business a villain. Well, let's talk about why they're doing it. They're certainly not doing it because they think it's bad for you. I can guarantee you that is not on the top 10 list of reasons they put salt in food. They put salt in food, A, because it makes it taste good and we like it. Well, we like food that we like, so that is really a good thing other than possible health consequences. The salt also in processed foods masks off flavors from the processing itself. And that's important because, look, if you're going to eat processed foods, it had to get processed. If the food you're eating that was processed doesn't taste very good, you're not going to eat it anymore. So the salt is kind of a, you know, a wink and a nod and a trick to make it taste the way you want it to. The next thing is even more important. Salt acts as a preservative for processed foods. And that's essential because it means that manufacturers can make food and can it or put it in a tin or a, a jar or whatever, and it enables it to have a much longer shelf life. And frankly, that makes it cheaper for them to produce food, and it makes it cheaper for us to buy it. So that there is an important economic reason why salt goes in food, and it also improves the texture and color of food. That gets back to it tasting good again. And here's the bottom line on salt and why manufacturers use it so much. It's cheap. I should mention, Greg, that in a previous life, uh, as a college student, one of my jobs was being the condiment clerk for uh, Hunt Wesson Foods, which, which went through a lot of salt in the year. Uh, yes. And, in fact, there was so much salt being in, in, into the food that the condiment clerk was is out of the loop on that one. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I had it every other condiment that was going into the, into the foods. But certainly, you know, I think canned foods are healthy. It, you know, like anything else, it's in moderation. And as you say, yeah. people wanted to eat more uh, balanced diets, fruit and vegetables. That's always a good policy. Of, of course it is. And, and I, I have to say here, because it's a really important point, we're not at Men's Health encouraging you to eat more salt. And, and of course it would be beneficial to you to eat less salt. But the two most salient points in I guess that was kind of a pun, salient, uh, wasn't intentional. But, I mean, I think that the two big points here is, first of all, um, the salt is there, and it's going to be very hard to get rid of it. You could do it. You could commit yourself to eating a much lower diet of processed foods and restaurant meals and reduce your salt intake. But the, ultimately, the most important point here is that for most of us, if you're healthy and you don't have high blood pressure, there's more and more research that suggests the salt is not a problem anyway. So if we're going to vilify something and put a lot of energy into doing something to give improved health, let's at least focus on something where it's really going to make a difference. Well, this is especially important, uh, Greg, because there's, there's some debate right now as to whether they should lower the standards to get it down in where it's like two and a half grams, something like that. To... Well, the recommendation is 3.8 grams of salt a day. We eat much more than that on a daily basis. A, a couple of other points here that are, are really important to hit on. You know, we when we talk about high blood pressure, um, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, it's salt's fault. Well, okay, wait a minute. What else causes high blood pressure? Well, well the very other very common reason why people have high blood pressure is that they're overweight. So just by reasonably and rationally looking at the cause of high blood pressure, we can take some of the heat off of the salt. Pearls of wisdom, because most everybody in America these days is packing a few extra pounds. 
Well, and, and we know the statistics about the percentages of people that are overweight and obese, uh, and, and they're important. They're important to consider in this debate. And then the other thing is, let's just say you're getting more salt in your diet than you should, and let's just say you want to cut back. Is reducing the amount of salt the only way to deal with the salt issue in your diet? Well, actually, there's a complete other way you can deal with it that you never hear about, and that is to just increase your potassium intake. Eat more potassium, it basically absorbs the salt, and you're essentially going about solving the problem, but just in a different way. How do you get more potassium in your diet? Well, guess what? Eat more fresh vegetables, uh, more fresh fruit and raw, and raw vegetables. I want to add an addendum, too, that uh, if you do have high blood pressure and you want to cut down your sodium, that they do have some salt mixtures that are part potassium chloride, part sodium chloride, and people find that very satisfactory. Yeah, it's, but it's just more, it's more to the point of, you know, we don't need to have a nationwide law outlawing salt. It, it, it's actually not going to accomplish a goal, and it's just going to outlaw something that, you know, in the end is actually kind of useful in some ways, particularly to the food processing industry. Well, this isn't the, the last word on, on the topic. I appreciate your input, Greg. I certainly agree that, uh, you know, that sometimes much ado is made of, of very little when it comes to people that don't have a, an issue of high blood pressure. But, uh, but this issue of the national standard, that's something I probably want to uh, talk to more people about, and we probably will on this program. But you need to come back and talk to us about some other stuff you guys are doing, and is there anything in the pipeline you can uh, give us a heads up on? Well, you probably heard of this event coming up called uh, the Holidays. <laughs> oh, yeah. That is, is an important event every year. And one of the things that we think is really important about this time of year is that whereas people give them per, give themselves permission to eat too much around this time of year, we're actually encouraging people to say, no, I'm not going to eat too much this year. I'm actually going to control what I eat during the holidays so that I weigh less on January 1st than I weigh today instead of accepting that I, it's okay to weigh three to five pounds more. <laughs> That is some darn good advice, and love to have you come back about January 1st to see how people did. I would love to do it. It's always great to talk with you. Greg, it's a pleasure, and we'll be talking again in the future. And uh, again, people can get more information at Men's Health Magazine. Menshealth.com. Thanks, Greg. You bet. It was great to talk to you again. Before we leave the subject of salt, I want to quote from the press release from UC Davis, which notes that in salt debate, science should trump politics, say researchers. A new study showing that sodium consumption in the U.S. has remained unchanged for more than 40 years, provides further evidence that federal efforts to reduce salt intake are both futile and unnecessary, three health researchers argue in the November issue of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. The authors include David McCarran, a physician and adjunct professor in nutrition at the University of California, Davis, who commented on a study published in the same issue by Adam Bernstein and Walter Willett of the Harvard School of Public Health. McCarran said the Harvard paper defines a narrow range of human sodium intake over nearly 50 years in the U.S. Combined with our findings published in 2009, these data should close the debate on whether there should be a recommended level of salt intake for the general population. Dr. McCarran went on, public policy should not try to trump human physiology. Any attempts to do so through well-intentioned strategies directed at the society at large, such as mandatory sodium labeling of food products, and extensive education and social marketing efforts are not going to change an intake pattern that reflects human biology. Such efforts also carry potentially substantial risks. 
This is a controversial subject we probably should hear the other side of, too, I think, at some point. But uh, reading on the press release, it notes that in an effort to obtain a long-term picture of sodium intake, these Harvard researchers analyzed data from 38 studies that were conducted between 1957 and 2003 that included more than 26,000 participants. In each study, participants' sodium intake was monitored by recording levels of sodium in the urine, a method considered to be the most accurate indicator of consumption. After evaluating data from all 38 studies over four decades, the researchers at Harvard found no significant change in urinary sodium. There was no indication that sodium consumption increased over that time, and the researchers estimated that the mean sodium intake from 1957 to 2003 remained relatively constant at 3,700 milligrams per day. Current federal dietary guidelines for salt consumption advise an adult should consume more than 2,300 milligrams, about a teaspoon per day, and individuals for risk at high blood pressure should keep their sodium intake at or below 1,500 milligrams. Such levels are dramatically lower than the published data indicate are normal for healthy humans. Anyway, I think we've heard the pro-salt side pretty thoroughly today, and at some point we'll have to hear uh, what others may say in opposition. It's a good question to note whether this... uh, the anticipated uh, revision of the U.S. dietary guidelines that are going to supposedly set a safe upper limit for all individuals, regardless of their health status at 1,500 milligrams, which is less than 40% of the average intake, well, you have to wonder, you know, is that what we should do? It's a good question to ask because hypertension is very common in the United States, and 90% of it, last time I checked, is described as idiopathic, meaning we don't know why you have it. Doesn't mean salt's to blame, but if you do have a tendency toward hypertension, salt is probably not your friend. Anyway, enough about that for today. We're kind of curious to see what's going to happen on December 31st about a story we reported on last April, which is that citing the health risks of secondhand smoke, the U.S. Navy will no longer permit smoking below deck aboard its 71 submarines, effective the end of the year. About 40% of the 13,000 submarine sailors are smokers. Gotta say, if I was stuck on a submarine and some jackass next to me lit up a cigarette, oh man, I'd be surprised if this doesn't cause some fist fights below the ocean surface. We'll have to look into the don't ask, don't smoke policy <laughs> as of uh, January 1st. Let's do a few miscellaneous items. How about this one? A brother and sister from West London found an old vase while cleaning out their parents' home, and they hired Bainbridge, an auction house, to sell it. They discovered, to their delight, it was valued at nearly $2 million. But after 30 minutes of spirited bidding at an auction last week, the 18th century Qing Dynasty vase went to a buyer from China for $69.5 million. That is the most ever paid at auction for a Chinese antiquity. Said a Bainbridge spokesman, they had no idea what they had. Adding that when the final bid was official, the sisters had to go out of the room and have a breath of fresh air. Boy, that's one I'd like to see in the Antiques Roadshow. What, what do you think this is worth? 20 pounds? Oh, oh no, no. It's, it's quite a bit more, actually. It is a shame that someone painted the Disney characters on the outside. I have to admit, I love that show, don't you? Remember one time a guy showing some artwork that he claimed that Elton John's chauffeur had offered him $15,000 for? The people with the art had turned him down, and they asked the appraiser what they thought it was worth. His first question was, do you still have his phone number? (laughs) He estimated it worth something like $400 or something. That was kind of a bad moment. All right, also from the miscellaneous file, we have a follow-up on our story last week about the exorcist conference the Catholic Church was holding. 
I guess it was How to Be an Exorcist. The conference was about the current state of exorcism in the United States. And we're sorry to note that uh, we didn't get any feedback from you, dear listener, about this conference. Nor did we hear from anyone who attended the Mickey Rooney event out in Granite Bay. But uh, back to the exorcist. Apparently, Bishop Thomas Paprocki of Springfield, Illinois, organized the conference, which, as we reported, apparently involved 50 bishops and more than 60 priests, and included instruction on the scriptural basis of evil, also how to evaluate whether someone is truly possessed. One symptom is a, quote, violent reaction to holy water, unquote. And I guess the participants were were, uh, given exorcism prayers and rituals. Bishop Paprocki was quoted as saying, the work of the devil is much more regular, and our response to that should be rather regular. Now, see, I never thought of the devil as kind of a a regular guy. You do have to, you know, play the devil's advocate. uh, You have to point out, this is a guy who can think outside the box. Since we've got about a minute left, uh, let's close this segment with quotes about the devil. Just to let you know you are listening to Radio Parallax and not any other program out there. I think we'll do five of them, starting with Neutral men are the devil's allies. That's from Edwin Hubble Chapin, American clergyman. Said scientist William Bragg Sr., God runs electromagnetics by wave theory on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and the devil runs them by quantum theory on Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturday. Said Winston Churchill, If Hitler invaded hell, I would make at least a favorable reference to the devil in the House of Commons. Then there's the German proverb we love, the devil is in the details. And final quote from the devil, this is a favorite of Mr. McMillan's, bit of a long one, but I think worth it. Comes from The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Said the captain of the ship, Wolf Larson, about the devil, he led a lost cause and he was not afraid of God's thunderbolts. Hurled into hell, he was unbeaten. A third of God's angels he led with him. And straight away he incited man to rebel against God and gain for himself and hell the major portion of all the generations of man. Why was he beaten out of heaven? Because he was less brave than God? Less proud? Less aspiring? No. A thousand times no. God was more powerful, as he said, whom thunder hath made greater. But Lucifer was a free spirit. To serve was to suffocate. He preferred suffering and freedom to all the happiness of a comfortable servility. He did not care to serve God. He cared to serve nothing. He was no figurehead. He stood on his own legs. He was an individual. There's more, but you're going to have to read Jack London for that. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I shouted out, who killed the Kennedys? Where, after all... 